Hello, I'm Dermot McKeever, co-founder and CEO of Powerful Planet. Welcome to our podcast, Tipping Point. At Tipping Point, we intend to explore and promote regenerative solutions for a greener future. We are, I think, past the point where we can waste anything, not time and not resources. In every episode, we'll dive into the latest developments and innovations in the world of green energy with a special focus on harnessing power from non-recyclable waste. And I'm delighted that we're joined this morning by Dr. Simon Schillebeck, and uh, he is the Chief Strategy Officer and a co-founder of Handprint. Good morning, Simon. Good morning, Dermot. Thanks very much for having me. It's our pleasure. So how did you start your environmental journey, if I may ask? How far back should I go? I really got interested in the environmental space when I was doing my master's degree at Nottingham University in corporate social responsibility. So the fact that I was doing that already was an indication of my general interest in kind of business ethics and the singular pursuit of profit maximization above all else. But the trigger point for me was really a TED talk from William McDonough, architect and founding father of cradle to cradle philosophy, what's now been popularized as circular economy. And in that TED talk, he spends 20 minutes explaining some of the projects that his company, MBDC, is working on around changing the way we design products to be more in line with what is sustainable in a way that just doesn't damage the planet. And for me, so that was in 2006, that really got me very excited about this concept around cradle to cradle and kind of how do we change business models and change products in order to you know, be more sustainable and really go beyond just sustainability and, and towards circularity. And then ended up working a couple of years later as a sustainability consultant, focusing on legacy sustainability or what I now call legacy sustainability, which means a lot we were doing was CSR reporting and like the early days of ESG. This was 2009, 2010. And very quickly, I realized that if we're going to do this consulting approach around sustainability, we have to talk to people that are in innovation. Because if you want to do meaningful change within a company's value chain, then innovation is going to be key. And so we started working on business model innovation and then product innovation, supply chain innovation. And then I got sick of that, went to do my PhD. I kind of never really left the, the, the environmental space. I worked a lot of natural resource management and environmental sustainability. And eventually set up a non-profit in 2018 and then handprint in 2019 to turn some of the academic concepts by then I was a professor so some of the academic concepts I've been working on into something more actionable and that's how it all came about. So that covers a nearly 20 year period then to 2006 to now if you step up outside that what do you think you know what progress do you see as having made as a species during that period of time? Do you think it's got worse or do you think it's got better? I think it got worse and better. The status of the environment and the state of our natural world definitely has deteriorated a lot since I got interested in climate change and biodiversity. Uh, if we remember, I think back in 2015 and 2014, when uh, in preparation for COP15 at the time, there was this organization called 350.org 
that was kind of rallying the entire world around, we have to make sure that we never cross this barrier of 350 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. And we're at 420 now. So I think it got better in terms of awareness, in terms of political action, in terms of judicial decisions. But despite all of that, what we've seen on the ground is really that it's only gotten worse and it doesn't look like we've reached that pivot point to really start seeing peak oil, peak carbon, peak uh, biodiversity loss. It looks like we're still quite a few years away from that and hopefully we'll get peak carbon emissions soon, but even the yeah, I mean, COP28 now is going to be run by the oil con- con- uh, countries. It's not very... I'm, I'm laughing, but I, I realise it isn't funny, but it is an irony that the guy that runs that oil company is running COP28. So you and I are just guessing that there'll be no real significant measures coming out of that one. I'm sure you've probably seen it. This morning, Rishi Sunak has announced that there'll be lots more oil and gas licences, but it's not going to be a problem for the environment because of carbon capture and storage, which he's working on with Shell. How does that make you feel? Um, I mean, I mean, two phases about, I think in general, there should be a global ban on fossil fuel exploration. I think if anything needs to come out of COP, it's that exploration should just become illegal. This is, it is outrageous that countries and governments and companies are still engaged in an activity that makes a mockery of climate science. So I'm very much in favor of that. I'm very doubtful it will happen. On the other hand, I also sincerely believe that there is no way out of this uh, existential crisis without the very active involvement of the oil and gas majors. They are economically and politically too powerful to ignore. And as a consequence, if, that's a big if carbon capture and storage at source becomes a real technological and economic and economically viable possibility, then it is a good solution. The reality is just that it seems very unlikely that this is going to happen fast enough without much more stringent regulation around what is allowed or what is possible in terms of carbon emissions. As long as we allow new exploration it just proves that whoever makes those decisions has not read the latest ipcc report or fails to understand the reality of climate change one of the interesting things is the international energy authority said i think probably three or four years ago that we literally didn't need more exploration there was no actual need for it to happen at all we would get from where we are today to where we are in the future without more exploration there was enough resources to do that And as you say, they are an interesting bunch, the oil majors, because as you rightly say, they own a lot of the infrastructure. So we're not going to be able to do it without them. The problem is that they are beholden to their shareholders. Yeah. And I think on the exploration, I mean, in 2012 or 2011, that the Carbon Tracker in London published this stranded assets report, which really sent shockwaves to a lot of uh, institutional investors, where they already showed that 65% of publicly listed fossil fuel companies, um, 65% of their asset base would never be allowed to be extracted if we are serious about keeping the temperature on Earth below 1.5 degrees increase. And ever since, of course, a lot more assets have come online. And we've also need to realize that from the publicly listed companies, 
that's a small part of the total number of companies that are working in this space, not in the least, all of the uh, government controlled corporates. So if we just look at the science and look at the asset base of fossil fuel companies, so including gas, uh, oil and, and coal here, if you look at what should actually remain in the ground, by now it needs to be close to 80%. So all of these companies are massively overvalued if people believe that governments will actually enforce what they've announced they will do around climate change. We've known this for a very long time, but it doesn't lead to sufficient action. No, which is, I guess, the reason that both your business and our business exists. It's because we now have to get into action of our own. The waiting for big oil politicians, etc., globally hasn't really worked. So on the one hand, you know, the, the thing you highlight that 80% of the money from carbon credits basically goes to the people that sit in the middle of that. It doesn't go anywhere to helping anybody. It just means that some people who thought it up make a lot of money, which isn't then diverted into mitigation or into regeneration. It's just more profit yet again. Um, so we have to get on, which brings us, of course, to your business, Handprint. So tell us about that. So Handprint is, is very different uh, from what I kind of initially got interested in the sustainability space. So we don't work around product design or we don't really work in the supply chain. We basically built a layer of positive impact that can lay on top of companies' existing business models. To accomplish this, we have two critical activities. So on the one side, we identify the most impactful regenerative projects on the planet these are typically run by nonprofit organizations, charities, social enterprises. And we, we digitize them and we bring them into a digital ecosystem um, where we equip all of these organizations with state-of-the-art reporting tools so that they can provide high-quality reporting, very auditable reporting about the impact they are creating on the ground. And then we uh, measure and validate that. And then we build the digital tools to enable companies to integrate this impact into their existing business processes across a wide variety of sectors. So the idea here is the kind of central hypothesis of Handprint is that by embedding impact into interactions with key stakeholders, employees, customers, suppliers, partners, you can improve the nature of the relationship that a company has with their stakeholders. And doing so creates business value, right? It could be more sales, higher customer lifetime value, faster customer acquisition, higher loyalty, better brand recognition, all of those things. So what we're trying to demonstrate is that companies can actually spend money on creating a positive impact. But if they're doing it in a way that makes business sense, then this budget doesn't matter because the benefits they can derive from this are much higher than uh, the money they spend on this, on this impact. That's kind of at a high level what, what we are doing. The good thing is we've been able to prove in numerous sectors that this hypothesis is true. And that indeed, if you integrate, for instance, reforestation into your e-commerce checkout, that this might increase your sales or this might increase repeat purchases. Or if you, do, if you integrate access to water in an advertising campaign, people spend more time watching your ad. So there are these positive business effects that we've been able to demonstrate. So that's good. That is really the essence of what we do. So we work across a variety of industries, but really focusing on 
not changing the supply chain, not changing the product design. We, we still encourage companies to do this, of course, but on just creating more positive impact. Because even if we would stop, if we would become completely carbon neutral and um, stop the entire biodiversity decimation that's ongoing, tomorrow we would still need to spend decades on improving nature's capacity to remove a lot of the damage we've done in the past. This is really where Handprint tries to play a role. And what, Thank you for that. And what would you say is your best success so far? Where you've engaged and you've gone, that's gone exactly how I thought it would go from one end to the other. I know life's not perfect. We're still in the early stages, right? I mean, we've been around now for three years, but we've, for instance, done A-B testing in e-commerce to see what is the effect of integrating our plugin and, and saw this increased sales by 16%. So that's pretty meaningful. We have been working with advertising companies to link our tools to add visibility so that when you see an ad on your phone or something, and we've been able to see that this uh, leads to a longer time watching the ad, higher completion rate, higher click-through rates, uh, more positive brand recall, all the things that advertisers really care about. Kind of demonstrating that by layering this impact on top of your business processes, or your, you can really have interesting effects. We've also seen a positive effect around event registrations when people do events and they say, okay, if you're coming to this event, we plant a tree or create another type of impact. And then we're now in very advanced stages of closing a deal to take these capabilities into the banking sector, specifically into retail banking, so that uh, banks can issue a bank card that has a positive impact on the world and enabling bank card users to then choose what this positive impact should be. And there's a lot of evidence in that specific space that this works, right? We rewrote as academics, we wrote a case study on the father, the mother company of Alipay. And, and Alipay in China is a, is a payments app that has built into its loyalty system, a reforestation project called Ant Forest. And this is the most successful corporate reforestation program in the world. And it costs the company very little money, but they have planted 750 million trees as part of this really smart gamified process around impact creation. So a lot of it, as always, is to do with education. I know, I'm not talking about politicians, I'm not talking about big business, I'm talking about just people generally. We don't understand the impacts of the things that we do. But as we start to, as you say, if you gamify things, for example, people get engaged with it. They start to begin to understand some of the impacts. And then their consumer behavior and their voting behavior can have an impact that you and I can't have on yeah. politicians or big business. Yeah, a lot stops and starts with education, of course. Um, on the other side, education moves quite slowly, right? And unfortunately, we can't wait for this or the next generation to be fully educated and really understand um, the importance of everything that we are trying to do and like that's happening in the sustainability movement. We need to move much faster, but creating the realization at the individual level that this is important needs to happen. The question is, of course, is this government responsibility? Is this, uh, is this even within the realm of the possible of, of an individual company? Like we had a conversation earlier on with a large uh, telco 
in in Indonesia, and so they were always asking like, oh, but yeah, we could do all of this, but do Indonesians really care about this? And then I told them it doesn't matter what they care about. Like if you market it in such a way that it becomes appealing to them, they will care about it. That's the whole point of marketing, right? Mm. Marketing is all about making people care about stuff that they don't necessarily care about. So you can lead that change as a company, especially as a large company, but it's it's probably very complex. Right? And uh, as long as people don't feel personally affected or don't think about this as something that has a personal effect on them, then it's very hard to change people's minds, no matter how much you try to educate them. There's an old saying about, you know, the best time to mend the roof is when the sun is shining, but people always wait until the rain starts. You know, it's a, it's a human thing. So far, you are addressing one of the biggest criticisms of an environmental movement, which is you're naive because, you know, it needs to make money. Well, both you and and we have discovered actually doing it the right way does make money. It can be done profitably because as much as we could debate the profit motive, it's there and it drives an awful lot of behavior. So when we do a project, they sort of love all the green supply chain stuff and the impact and the net zero, and we can take people to net zero in a couple of years, but they won't action it until I can show them a rate of return that's better than they get now. That's the fact. Yeah, and I think within a capitalist economy, denying that is being totally tone deaf, right? So what we are trying to do at Handprint is if is creating a new source of value capture. So yeah. if we think about positive impact creation, really in terms of what do we do with a CSR budget or kind of a, a corporate philanthropy budget, typically this doesn't create any business value or very, very limited business value. If you think about companies buying carbon credits, the main reason why they do this is for some kind of institutional legitimacy, right? And they might then put that in an annual report and say, we are carbon neutral or whatever that means. But the reality is that those kind of activities don't have a value capture model. They create public value, but they don't have a value appropriation model outside of legitimacy, which is important, but it's not really easy to measure. And so I think what we are trying to advocate is that look, this is really possible to lead to business growth or to lead whatever your objective is, whatever your metric is, if you're doing it in the right way. And so with a lot of our large companies that we work with, it's about convincing them that their existing budgets that are going to non-strategic kind of charitable donations can be much better spent in terms of business alignment if they're following this regeneration strategy. And slowly but steadily, companies are uh, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and start to do that. And that gives me some hope, but we need a lot more hope. Yeah, we, you're right, we do. Just finally, what's the next big thing for you guys? You know, What's in your head about how you take that message further and deeper? So I think the partnership that we're building with Idemia, which is a B2B bank art technology player, is really critical to what we are seeking to accomplish because this will make our capabilities accessible to a large part of the world through the intermediation of uh, existing banks. And I think whatever we're trying to do in, in the world that needs to scale, uh, you need to sit where money is moving because yep. the, the financial economy is like hundred thousand times bigger than the real world economy right? in yep. terms of money, international money movements. So 
If you can think about a Tobin tax on financial transfers without considering calling it a tax, but if money moves from A to B and embedded in that movement is a small contribution to something that's going to be having a positive impact on the world, if you can do this at scale, and so we are in conversations with Visa, for instance, to, and talk about scale, um, you change the world. Right? And this is the promise, right? If Visa would adopt kind of our mentality and say like, hey, we can make 0.1% of our transaction volume or the fee we take on the transaction, we can make that available for the creation of positive impact. We are talking hundreds of billions. Mm. And that's, I think, really where we need to play a role. And I think that's where a lot of the potential is. So... Yeah, I'm really excited about that. We're also building partnerships more on kind of high quality carbon credit generation. That's also really interesting because uh, the projects we're working with on the ground are incredible projects. And of course, these projects have a very clearly defined financial ROI. So within this climate, that's still very important. And then starting to work on kind of biodiversity credits. So independently verified. So I think there's a lot of stuff that's pretty exciting in the next four or five months. But as always with a startup, it's until the, the agreement is signed and money is in the bank, nothing really happens. So yeah, we'll see how, how we move forward. But it, it looks pretty good at the moment. Yeah, it's great. And good luck with that. I think you're right. The financial flows around the world, if you can put a pipeline into that and siphon some of that off to to be almost the opposite of GDP, which is all about profits, and it doesn't measure in any way the impact on the planet. If you can take a bit of that and put that into a fund that then can actually be deployed, not by politicians and by big business, but by people like yourselves, you can start to put it straight where it needs to be. And as you say, climate change is less obvious if you happen to live in the UK, for example. It's much sure. more obvious if you happen to live on a shoreline somewhere along where south of here. Um, so we're not seeing the same pain that they're seeing. So the immediacy isn't there in the global north to the way it is in the global south. But you're right, some of that money has to now start being uh, you know, directed to that mitigation and that regeneration. Yeah. And I mean, if we look at this, right? so I, I recently did this back of the envelope calculation just to have an idea about like, what is the scale of the need that we're actually talking about, right? And so I used two very simple data points. One was, what is the revenue of the top 2,000 companies on earth? Right? So Forbes publishes that on an annual basis. So what is their annual revenue combined? And it's about 50.8 trillion. So it's a, it's a lot of money. That's yep. 2,000 companies. And then you look at one report, and I kind of picked one very well established from UNDP, the State of Finance for Nature, where they lay out how much money do you need to spend on regeneration in the next couple of years until 2050 in order to avoid biodiversity collapse and work on climate change. And so they said in 2025, we need to spend 384 billion. Now that looks like a large number, but likened to just the top 2,000 companies, that would mean it's 0.11 cents per dollar of revenue. Yeah. 0.11 cents. I mean, that's nothing. Yeah. Even per yeah. dollar of profit, it's 1.3 cents. Mm. It's 1.3 cents per dollar of profit. If you just say only the top 2,000 in the world need to do this, the 2,000 biggest companies in the world, 
And if you include everyone, you're talking about 0.02 cents. So the scale of what we need seems immense. But in reality, given how much revenue is being generated by many of these large companies, and of course, many of those are in the finance space, it's really not that much. So and that gives me a lot of hope. I look at those numbers, and I'm like, look, we can really do this. We can reverse all of these. Because even if they're off by a factor of 10, it's still very feasible. So yeah. that's the positive. Yes, and I think that, that we, we should end on that positive note. Because as you say, to coin a phrase, there is enough money in the world. Oh, to actually there is them. plenty of money in the world. And there's actually plenty of goodwill in the world as well. I think it's really about finding that cause that people can relate to, and people, at least people with money, and that kind of motivates their action. I think this is really important. This means you have to make it tangible, you have to make it actionable, you have to make it visual, and you have to get people to be emotionally engaged. And that's what we're trying to do at Handprint. And that's what I still believe will eventually save the world and hopefully win us the Nobel Prize at some point. <laughs> Simon, listen, thank you for talking to us today. Uh, and we wish you luck with both the next few months and the next few years. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers.